following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. All right, let's open our Bibles. We're going to go to Psalm chapter 20 this morning. Um, and just to give you a little bit of a heads up of what we're heading into, next Sunday we're going to begin a series for several weeks on the Great Commission. Uh, we're going to jump back into our Genesis series in January. Uh, but for the upcoming months, we're going to cover the Great Commission. And we're doing that on purpose because uh, with fall coming, with uh, the rain beginning to hit, People begin to kind of gather once again in this community, and we want to be sure that we are we're representing Christ well. During the summer months, we've been doing a series on the Psalms. And what I do when we head to a summer Psalm series like this is I ask different men to pick a Psalm of their choosing to preach from. So I don't give them a text. Um, I give them, I just give them kind of free reign. You pick a Psalm that you'd want. Here's some Psalms you can't do because we've already covered them, but just pick one. And it's been intriguing throughout the summer what various men have chosen to preach from. Probably two-thirds of the psalms that have been preached this summer have been from psalms of lament or psalms of grief. Uh, right up to the last two weeks when last Sunday Rick Gamash preached on Psalm 88 and the previous Sunday Dave Quilla preached from Psalm 13, neither men knowing what they were doing and both men knowing after they heard what the other guy was doing after they got done preaching, both of those psalms are companion psalms. They actually go together. And they're both psalms that ask a serious question of the Lord. How long, O oh God? How long will the suffering take place with literally no answers in sight? And I've been wondering throughout the last several weeks of what is the Lord saying to us? I mean, this has been obviously by God's design. It hasn't been by us making things up and saying, let's preach through a bunch of psalms of lament in the summer months, because summer months are times for celebrating. But these have been months where we have been literally in some very hard and challenging psalms for us to think about hard, challenging things. And I've been wondering why. I, I just got a few thoughts that maybe of what is going on. I do know one th- reason why this is happening is there's a lot of lament going on in our church right now. Some of you may not know it, but there are some in our church who have been given news that may last the rest of their lifetimes. It's hard news. Some have gone through extended periods of challenging family issues or business issues. Some have gone through financial stresses that have maxed them out. And there's a lot of lament going on. There's a lot of, man, Lord, how long is this going to last? The other reason, I think, could be, is that the Lord seems to be preparing some of us for an extended period of suffering. Um, there's a lifestyle, a life cycle of churches. And you need to know about it. It's, it's glory, then suffering, glory, then suffering, glory, then suffering. And I have always felt strongly that as a pastor who leads people, that we need to be very honest about what Scripture says about suffering and hardships and prepare you for the day when we particularly may go through that, or even better, when you may have to go through that, and you can't get a hold of your pastor to talk, but you've got your Savior to communicate with. Because we want you to be people who have a firm understanding that you have a God in the universe who cares for you way more than your elders or your pastors or even the people sitting in the pew, but you have a God who's always on call. But there's another reason why I think that the Lord has allowed us to go through this series of sermons, and it's because we need to have a category in our Christian theology and Christian life and journey when life does not make sense. We need to have categories for the fact that just because I didn't do my devotions this morning or because I did do my devotions this morning or I've done A plus B does not always equal C. We need to have categories for like that. We we need to have some, some places to put ideas that just when the lines of life are blurry and there's a bunch of nuance going on in life that none of us really understand because not everything is answered in straight lines. And to be honest with you, where we have to be careful as Christians 
is the misnomer for some Christians is we sometimes just say to people in a sense, and I'll just use a metaphorical phrase, take two Bible verses and call me in the morning. When there is literally moments of life when that doesn't help. A lot of moments in life that doesn't help. And for us just to simply name something or speak to something or pray something frustratedly is not the answer to the problem. Sometimes there is no answer. And we have to have categories for what happens when that goes on and if we are going to lean in and trust with every ounce of energy that we have, which may only be a minuscule ounce of energy, to just cling to the fact that our God is good and he knows what he's doing. And sometimes you know as well as I do that sometimes all you can muster is that moment just to say, God, I don't know what you're doing but I trust you. It's in those times that we have got to lean upon the character and promises of God and trust him even though it's hard. Because friends, listen, let's be straight. That's where real life is. Living in a Genesis 3 world with all of its aches and pains that come with it is challenging and every human in the world is going through a similar challenge or they are going through some sort of suffering. And yet there's a difference between the people of God and the non-people of God and how they see that suffering. That's why we need, we need these categories. Because we, we've got to have something that says, Lord, I, I trust you. I trust to know that there's nothing outside of your divine plan and providence to take care of your people and advance your gospel. Yet this hurts. So this morning, I'm going to preach to us from Psalm chapter 20. It's it's one of my favorite psalms. It's a personal psalm to me. Um, and to be honest with you, a few weeks ago, I had a different plan. I was going to preach on Psalm 48 to kind of keep along in my journey of Psalm 40. But I was going through a, 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 a thing a few weeks ago where I was texting my wife about just different moments that I was frustrated, things I was challenged by. And my wife did something like she normally does. She pulled out my favorite verses in the Bible and just said, don't forget these words because God has always met us here. And the words she chose were the words out of Psalm 20. And the reason why she picked these words for me is because several years ago, as I was going through one of my darkest times as a pastor and in ministry, I was wrestling through why I was doing what I was doing. What's the point of building a church? What's the point of serving in a church? What's the point of leading a church? Why preach these truths that have become so dear to my soul? And I was in a really dark place in my soul. And the Lord used Psalm chapter 20 to just, if you will, fish me right out of my doldrums. And help me see that I was putting my trust in the wrong place. Now here's what we're going to look at in Psalm chapter 20. It's a psalm for protection and blessing. It was a psalm that was more than likely written by a psalmist for David as David was preparing to go on the battlefield. More than likely it was written as David looked ahead to the day of trouble, knowing the day of trouble was on the horizon. Now, you can picture this scene with me for a moment. You've seen it in maybe a military movie. If you're a big fan of Braveheart, you probably know the scene I'm talking about. When the army is on the precipice of the battlefield, the enemy is on the shadows of the fog. You can see their shields. You can see their spears. You can see the chariots on the horizon. You can see the horsemen preparing for battle. It's the day of trouble is on the horizon. Well, that prayer, Psalm chapter 20, is a prayer for that day. It's a prayer for blessing. It's a prayer prayer for protection. And while most of us probably will not face, by God's kindness to us, a physical army, some of you have, and by most of us probably will never have to take up arms as Christians. Listen, we all face the day of trouble. The question is not if, it is when. And we all face a spiritual war 
that we are wait, we are battling in. We're all engaged in a battle for the souls of men, women, and children, and the day of trouble awaits us. And as we've listened to these psalms of lament through the summer, one thing that has stood out to me as we end our summer psalm series today is how do we prepare for it? How do we think about it? As we look on the horizon and we see and we hear the clashing of swords and the battleground in front of us, how do we prepare ourselves for that day? See, we all need this song. And so here's what we're going to learn this morning. If you're new with us, you should have got a, a, a bulletin. On the backs of the bulletin has an outline, and the outline has a big idea. And this is what we're hoping to learn this morning from this text in Psalm chapter 20. <clears throat> we will all face the day of trouble. God's character and care for his people means we can pray and trust him. We will all face the day of trouble. God's character and care for his people means we can pray and trust him. So stand with me. We're going to read Psalm chapter 20 together. I'll read it. You can follow along. It'll come up on the screen if you got your Bibles on your phones or in your hand. Follow along with me as I read it. We stand because this is God's inspired holy word. And we trust it to speak to us words of everlasting life. Psalm chapter 20. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt offerings. May he grant your heart's desire. And fulfill all your plans. And may we shout for joy over your salvation. And in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with his saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Father, may you answer us when we call. May you protect your people. May you speak to us the words of truth. May you prepare us for the days ahead, for the glory of Christ, and the advancement of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Hmm. Now let's start by looking at the first point in your outline, which is prayers for the day of trouble. You're going to see this in verses 1 through five. This is a psalm of David. There is some debate on who it was written by. Uh, more than likely, it was written by a psalmist for King David. The speaker in the psalm seems to be the psalmist and the people of God praying for their king as he is preparing for battle. It's a corporate psalm, meaning it involves all the people. For King David, as he prepares for this battle, looking on the horizon of what is coming, knowing the people's love for David. I mean, David was was their military and political hero. I mean, this guy stood head and shoulders above the rest, metaphorically. He he was their champion of champions. Knowing their love for him, that would make a whole lot of sense. And you can see in the text pronouns like you in the early parts and we later on, which seem to indicate the nation was praying for their king. And you'll notice in verses 1 through 5 that there are seven prayers of blessing that all begin with the word may. May the Lord, may the God of Jacob, may he, speaking of God, just fills the early parts of verses 1 through 5. Verses 1 through 5 is a prayer. It's a request. A, uh, it's, a it's a request of God to act to bless, to protect, to save the king and his people as they head off to battle. Now notice several things that these people pray for. 
They pray that God might answer you in the day of trouble. Now notice something here, that they didn't say deliver from the day of trouble. They said answer you in the day of trouble. Meaning, it's coming. Notice as well that they prayed, may the name of the God of Jacob protect you which is an indication of God's authority and sovereignty and presence with his people. Praying that God's name would protect his people meant that God's good and glorious name is on the line when his people are faced with the day of trouble. It was understood by the psalmist that God was with them and God was fighting for them. They carried the name of their heavenly father with them when they went into the day of trouble. But then they prayed, may he send you help from his sanctuary and from support from Zion. An indication that they knew very clearly that their help was not in the king taking them to battle. Their help came from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And then they prayed, may he remember all of your offerings and regard you with favor your burnt offerings. Which is just a picture of what the Israelite kings did before heading off to battle. They would have a time where they would they would make offerings before God to submit themselves before God before going into battle. And the people are just recognizing that David would be making these offerings and may God look with favor upon those offerings, David, and bless you in the midst of this day of battle as you submit yourself to the King of Kings as he leads you into the day of trouble. But then they prayed, may he grant your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. What's intriguing is, if you take these verses right here, may he grant your heart's desire and fulfill your plans, out of the context of Psalm 20, you have something totally different, don't you? You have, may God grant you your heart's desire for that BMW. May God grant you your heart's desire for your bank account to be full. But when you know that the people are on the precipice of the battlefield facing the day of trouble, what is simply going to be in their mind? We just want to make it out alive. The king's desire would obviously be victory, would be saving of his people, and their prayer is, may God... May God see to it to fulfill that plan. May he fulfill and care for your people. May he protect you in the day of battle. And it, it extends to the next verse when they pray, may we shout for joy over your salvation. And in the name of our God, set up banners. These banners were these victory signs as they come back into home, the homeland saying, we have won and here's the victory banners that we are waving. May the Lord fulfill all of your petitions. The people are praying, may God, may God give us the sure sign that he will, he will pray, he will care for and protect his people and the king. They wanted their king saved. They wanted their people saved. They wanted victorious banners waved over their city and their nation as they were saved from the day of battle. Now notice something intriguing with me about these, these petitions. Notice the bookends of the petitions. Notice how it begins. May the Lord answer you. And notice the end, how it's bookend. May the Lord fulfill your petitions. On, on both ends of this, this, this petitions for blessings, you have a people who were remarkably Godward. They understood very clearly that God was the only hope in the day of trouble. May God do these things. May the Lord, your God, answer you. But there's also an assumption in the text, isn't there? There's an assumption that their king would be in prayer. There's an assumption that their king would be crying out to God and they prayed that God would hear his prayers. I, just off the top of my head, can you name one of your politicians that you would say, I'm praying and knowing that you will indeed be praying to the God of heaven. We don't know many of them. But the people of Israel knew that. So what you have in the first five verses is you have a praying people and you have a praying king. Now before we move on, I want to draw one thing out of this for us to just 
meditate on and let it sit on us for just a moment as we think about the day about the day of trouble. Do you see the importance of praying before the day of trouble, not just in the day of trouble? I think every one of us in the room would say, we know the importance of praying in the day of trouble because when it comes on us suddenly, it brings us to our knees for a moment. I think all of us can look back at September 11th and think, wow, our nation was in moments were crying out to God and beginning to move toward God when, when disaster struck. And as the years have waned on, how has that gone for us? We all see the need to pray in the day of trouble, but do you see the need to pray before the day of trouble? And what I mean by this is, I don't mean formulaic, liturgical prayers, even though written prayers can be a guide to help us raise our hearts to heaven. And I don't mean a frustrated communication to God that just throws our hands up at God as if whatever you're going to do, you're going to do, God. I mean a heartfelt communication with your God as you are communing with your God before the day of trouble ever comes. See, what's implied in Psalm 20 is a personal relationship with the living God. It is assumed in Psalm 20 that the people know their God and they believe that David knows his God. And so what do they do? They lift their hearts together to their God. See, that's what's assumed. See, you and I cannot control the day of trouble. You're aware of that, right? You can't control it. But what you can control is your communication with God. This is one of the beauties of being made right with God through Jesus Christ. Not only are we granted forgiveness of sin, not only are we granted the righteousness of Christ whereby we stand before God, we are granted access into the presence of the living God, whereby we can communicate with Him as our Heavenly Father. Listen to the writer of Hebrews describe this moment in chapter 4 of Hebrews when he said, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. No, we don't but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may find mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you you see what the psalmist is, what the writer of Hebrews is saying? You have access to the living God because of Christ. And your prayers are never turned away at the door. And God is never frustrated when you come to Him to say, Lord, I I need you to meet me in this moment. I need wisdom. I need understanding of how to deal with these issues. I need you to prepare my soul for what may be coming. God never turns you away because God has opened the door for you in Christ. And you have a moment. Every moment of your life is prepared with God to be in fellowship and communion with Him. Let me just ask you then, how, how's your prayer life in preparation for the day of trouble? Do you turn to God before the day of trouble? Or are you waiting for the day of trouble to happen, then you'll get your life right with the Lord? Or you're going to wait until bad things happen and then it's going to finally snap you into gear? Maybe today is a day that you you need to rekindle yourself before the Lord and go and meet with your God before the day of trouble. Because I can assure you from personal 53 years of experience, God is kind enough to get your attention in the day of trouble. And you'd much rather be prepared before you get there. Now this is important Because our prayers before the day of trouble reveal something about our faith. And that's where we're going next. Look at the second point with me, which is faith for the day of trouble. 
We're going to see this in verses 6 through 9. Verse 9, you can see how the psalmist ends it with, O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. But there's a transition in the text that goes on. It's a, it's an interesting one. It goes from prayers of blessing to statements of faith. Right? Prayers of blessing and statements of faith. These are like resolutions. Like commitments, declarations. This is like the psalmist preaching to himself and to King David and King David preaching to the people. It's like the people preaching to the king. Declaring where their heart stands and what they will cling to and what they will trust in. And the first thing that they say is that they know that the Lord will save his anointed. Now that is just a, in short form of speaking about the king. They know that he will answer the king from heaven. And they know that he will save him with his right hand. Meaning that that's a sign of God's sovereign power will save the king. There is no universal power like the power that sits at the right hand of God. And God will deliver the king by this power and by his might. But what you'll notice is virtually everything listed in these verses, in verses 6 through 9, is everything they prayed for in verses 1 through 5. The psalmist states that he believes God will answer verses 6 through 9 of the very things he prayed for in verses 1 through 5. They prayed that God would answer the king, that God would protect the king, and that he would rejoice, that they would rejoice in his salvation. But in verse 6, look what he says, now I know. There's an emphatic, resolute statement of commitment. We know these things will happen. But notice the second thing the psalmist does is he states where their trust comes from. Verses 6 through 8, he says this, Some trust in chariots, and some trust in horses. But we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we will rise and stand upright. Now, these verses are interesting because they, they do a couple things to us. One, they show us a contrast. I hope you see the contrast. The contrast between what others, those who do not proclaim God as their king, what they trust in, horses and chariots, and what the people of God trust in, the name of the Lord our God. In other words, they can visualize this day, the enemy across the battlefield, trust in their military prowess and their strength. But David's people, God's people, we trust in the fact that we are God's people and God is on our side and we carry his name with us and God, his right hand of sovereign power is on our side. You see the difference? The difference is between the combatants is not military power, but spiritual faith. Do you see the difference? The difference is not military precision. The difference is what they are trusting in. God's people trusted in the fact that they belong to God and He would hear, He would protect, and He would save them. Their enemies trusted in chariots and horses. But these verses also do something else. They, they show us the consequences of what we put our trust in. Notice, those who put their trust in horses and chariots will collapse and fall, but those who put their trust in the name of the Lord will rise and will stand. We'll see in a moment how this is actually pointing us ahead to a day when one who was always faithful to God rose and stood. And we, his people, will one day rise and stand with him. In other words, what these verses are telling us is trusting in human ingenuity or military and political power will eventually bring collapse and ruin. Let that be a warning shot to you as you look ahead to your 2024 election. But trusting in the name of the Lord as a child of God, causes us to rise and stand upright. In other words, trusting in horses and chariots or things made by human strength leads to weakness and eventual disaster, but trusting in the Lord, the name of the Lord, on behalf of His people, leads to strength and eventual security. 
He just lays out the consequences in front of us. Now I want to draw some application out of these verses to just drive this point home a bit further. Verses 1 through 5. The prayer of blessing really does flow from verses 6 through 8. The people pray before the day of trouble because they have faith or trust or confidence in their God to meet them in the day of trouble. Do you see why your prayers indicate your faith? Your prayers before the day of trouble indicate your faith about the day of trouble. The psalmist declared his trust in the Lord because he knew that God was indeed trustworthy. This week I I utilized different methods of study and research and I did the, you know, really deep and, you know, profound thing of saying, Hey Siri, how do I know if I should trust something or someone? Here was Siri's response and she just replied on my iPad. You trust someone or something because you know that they won't harm you. That they have your best interests in mind. And that they are sincere and honest. I'm not Siri, but you can hear her in the background. The psalmist knew that God had their best interest in mind. The psalmist knew that God would not harm them. The psalmist knew that God was honest and sincere with his people. He knew these things because of God's past victories and how his saving hand had delivered them over and over and over again. They could look back in their history and they could see after 400 years of slavery in Egypt, God delivered them by his righteous right hand. They can remember back when this king, this very king was standing on the precipice of a battlefield when a giant rose up and began to threaten the people of God. And he took out one smooth stone with his slingshot and dropped him dead. They looked at those days and said, surely God is trustworthy. Surely God is faithful to his people. See, they had faith and confidence and trust in their God to hear them and save them. So what did they do? They prayed before the day of trouble because they knew that God could be trusted in the day of trouble. Could your lack of prayers before the day of trouble be because you really don't believe God will answer you in the day of trouble? And this is important to us because the the day of trouble reveals where we put our trust. You're you're aware of this, right? The day of trouble will always expose you. It will reveal where you're putting your trust, your confidence, your, your faith, to use a biblical term. Just ask some questions. When trouble hits, what patterns of behavior reveal where you put your trust? What are behaviors that come out of you naturally? Some of us, we turn to mindless scrumming on, you know, scrolling through social media. Some of us, we turn on the sports world just to kind of take our mind off of the trouble. Some of us turn to entertainment because we trust that the mind nubbing activity will just take us far away and eventually our troubles will leave us. Some of us turn to eating. Some of us turn to to spending money, shopping. Some of us turn to self-medicating because we believe that somehow this overindulgence will bring comfort to our soul. What's intriguing is every one of us in the world are after two things. We want happiness and satisfaction, and we want life eternal. And so in our moments of trouble... We immediately turn to other things or behaviors to reveal, to bring happiness or maybe just take us out of our doldrums and get our brain onto something else because let's extend this for a little. Let's extend life a little longer. Notice what the psalmist does. Prayer flowed out of their trust in God. Verses 1 through 5 come because they believed verses 6 through 8. John Piper just simply said this, prayer 
is faith in action. What behavioral patterns reveal where you trust? Here's another one. What emotional patterns do you fall into? If you want to know how far you proceeded in uh, your maturity in Christ, ask yourself how you emotionally respond when someone says bad things about you. Things like anxiety, fear, anger, or criticism happen because we don't like the fact that somebody said something or that the day of trouble has made us out of control, right? The day of trouble reveals to us, doesn't it? We have no control. And we get anxious or fearful or angry or we criticize because we're, we're out of control and we want to try to bring things back into alignment. So somebody says something bad about us and somebody tells us about it and we then criticize them back as a form of controlling the narrative a little bit. Or in our anxiety, we think that through our anxiety, we can think through a variety of ways we can solve this problem and we can bring everything back under control. But here's a question for you. Do your emotional responses to the day of trouble make you feel like you are collapsing and falling. Notice the psalmist's calmness, his peace, his confidence. He seems to be rising and standing upright, doesn't he? I mean, there's this, <clears throat> there's this, the day of trouble's coming. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. And then he gets to verse six and he just kind of says, now I know. You see, you see, why, why is he rising? Why is he standing? Because he trusted in the name of the Lord his God. And let me just put a little subpart on that section that you can think through as well. And this is something that really got me recently as I was navigating through this text. And really something that my, my wife very graciously texted me that day. Isn't it interesting how we put our confidence and trust in things we can measure. So let's take this text for a moment. Some trust in chariots and horses because they can count them. If there's more of them, we're probably going to win. We can be happy. If there's less, if we have more than they do, we can be happy. If we have less, we might be a little sad. What about this? Some may trust in their bank accounts and investments. Some may trust in their attendance numbers and seating capacity. Some may trust in their profits and income margins. Some may trust in the amount of signed contracts and checks in the mail. Some may trust in their likes, shares, and comments. Some may trust in their followers and subscribers. Some may trust in election results. See, these are all measurables. They're all measurables. When they're up, so are we. When they're down, so are we. Measurables, let's be honest, are what everybody else in the world trusts in. Everybody in the world trusts in how is the economy doing by these particular numbers. Here's the indicators. Here's the inflation percentage. Here are the interest rates. These verses do not tell us to stop measuring. They tell us to stop trusting in what we're measuring. Everybody see the difference? You may have more chariots and horses than the guy next to you. But the Lord may determine in that day, you're going down. You may have more people in the seats. But the Lord may determine in some day, you're going down. You may have more money in your bank account. But the Lord may determine one day, that money's going away. These verses are not telling us don't count. They're telling us to stop trusting in what we are counting. King David did this. The height of his kingdom, he decided one day he would count his people. Joab, if you know much about Joab, if Joab gives you a warning, first of all, he's kind of a violent dude. You probably should listen. But secondly, he's not always the most wise guy on earth. And Joab said to him, hey, man, bad idea. And David went to count the people. Count his numbers, count his chariots, count all the stuff he had. Because David wanted some confidence that God was with him. And the Lord said, I'm having none of it. 
And from that one moment in David's life, 40,000 Israelites lost their lives. The issue was not the counting, because Moses counted the people of God when God told him to. The issue was David was putting his trust in the wrong measurable. Friends, one difference between a Christian in the day of trouble and a non-Christian in the day of trouble is what and who we trust. Listen to Jeremiah as he's speaking for God, as God said these words through him. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. The day of trouble reveals where we put our trust. That's why, listen, the prayers before the day of trouble are important to prepare you for the day of trouble when it happens. Beforehand reveals what you're going to believe in in that moment. Paul Tripp wrote it like this. If your hope disappoints you, it's the wrong kind of hope. You see, hope in God never disappoints precisely because it is hope in God. This means that hope placed in any other thing will always end up disappointing. What about you? Are you simply trusting in things you can measure? Have you developed patterns, behavior patterns, emotional patterns of dealing with the day of trouble that lack faith? Is prayer your first stop or your last resort? Now I want to close our time by just pondering this thought. How do we prepare for this day? Two things I want to leave you to help you. First, know your God. Friends, this psalm is pointing to a hope in God because the psalmist knows God. The people of Israel, their king, know their God. They know God's past dealings with them. They understand their history and what God has done on their behalf. They know God's faithfulness, trustworthiness, and his steadfastness. That's why he knows that God will save the king in the day of trouble and why he doesn't trust in chariots and horses even though they can be numbered. Know your God, friend. Know your God. Look at his past dealings with you and his people and just marvel at what he's done. And the crescendo of God's dealings with his people was sending his son Jesus to live perfectly as our representative and to die as our substitute in our place. And what was God's response to that Godward anointed king? His response was to raise him from the dead so that Jesus could rise and stand upright. Why? Because he is God's anointed and those in God's anointed will be saved. And that moment, that moment is a historical fact that we can look back on and remember over and over and over again. Look at God's track record for his people. Look at God's track record toward you. Look at his constancy, his steadfastness. And his, he is eternally unchanging toward his people. And he is entirely trustworthy. Friend, know your God. Turn to your God. Turn to the historical book that he's given you, the Bible, where he reveals himself to you. Study his attributes. Know his character. Meditate on his promises and turn to him in your heart. Lean into him. That's why I encourage you, pray before the day of trouble. Go to him. Worship Him. Bow before Him. Know your God. Taste and see that the Lord is good because there's a day coming when things are going to taste a little bitter. And you better know the character of your God before you get there. The second thing I would tell you to prepare yourself for is deeply involve yourself in the community of God, the church. And you might go, where do you get that from this psalm? This psalm is corporate. Notice it's God's people praying for their king. There's a debate in some points that is potentially David 
writing the psalm for the people. Either way you interpret the author, you're going to notice how corporate this psalm is. Some would say, well, the application should be we should pray for kings and all those in authority. That's true, but David was far more than their king. David was one of them. David was their brother. He was their true shepherd. He was their friend. He's the guy that they knew about his background. They knew that David wasn't much when he became the king. They knew of David's protecting of sheep in the fields from bears and lions and a variety of other things. They knew of David killing Goliath when everybody else was being pansies about it. They knew that David had a slingshot. David was one of them, and they were committed to one another. David had them in his heart, and they had David in their hearts. And friends, listen, this is one reason why God gave us the church. One reason why he gave us the church. We are to pray for one another. We are to love one another. We're to weep with one another. We're to comfort one another. We're to encourage one another. That's one reason why God gave us the church. It is not a social club to just dabble in and pay our dues every week and just check things off the box. No, it's a place where we deeply involve ourselves with one another about the deepest things that matter to us on earth because the day of trouble is coming and we know it. This is why, listen, as the church grows, we've got to make it feel smaller. Have to. It's why, it's why, listen, if you're not in a community group, get in one. Be with people. If you're not connected to trusted Christian friends, get connected to trusted Christian friends. It's why our Sunday gatherings are so important because we gather around the things that matter most to us in the world and that never change and we remind ourselves of them over and over and over again because the world is always changing. Get deeply involved in the church. But by getting deeply involved, I don't just mean if you're not. I also mean this. Look for opportunities every time we gather to pray and encourage one another. Let me encourage you for a moment. Do not be people that just come in late and leave early. Now, I am the pastor of the church, and so I do periodically, most every Sunday, stand in the foyer. So I know who y'all are. <laughs> right? If you want to know why I leave at the last song, it's because I want to see who's leaving. So I can go, hey, how we doing? And give them a look. Now you know how I'm looking at you. Right? You going to stay, hang out? Or you got things to do? You want to get to in and out before the rest of us? Right? Right? Come Come late. Don't come late and leave early. Look around. Realize there's somebody here that needs to hear something from the risen Christ from your mouth. Somebody needs prayer. This morning as I walked in, I saw Bruce out here praying for a young couple. We can all take Bruce's example, can't we? Right? At CLF, we are not pastrick-centric. We're God-centric, and we believe that God has gifted his people all of them to serve each other and to serve him. Further, we believe that when we seek Christ together, here's what happens. The fruit is deep, intimate, joyful, sacrificial community. Listen to Tim Keller on this point. Community is the fruit of Christ-exalting worship. Community is not what we're to aim for. Christ is. And when we find him, or rather he finds us, community naturally follows. If you're looking for a new church, do not be looking for one just for community. Be looking for Christ. In the church, brothers and sisters, we are always pointing you to Christ. Why? As you get this relationship right, your horizontal relationships will get connected. Hebrews 10 put it best, didn't he? And let us consider... How to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but what? Encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So listen, brothers and sisters, to prepare yourselves for the day of trouble, know your God and get deeply involved in his community. And know this, listen, know this, we're all going to face the day of trouble. We all are. 
But God's character and his care for his people means we can pray and we can trust him. Let's pray. The chances are just a few seats away from you or even right next to you, there's somebody who is facing or in the day of trouble. <clears throat> I can tell you that all of us, no matter who you're sitting next to, are on the precipice of the day of trouble. It's not if, it's when. So we're going to pray together for each other. Father, we declare as the psalmist, some may trust in chariots and some may trust in horses. But we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. We believe that you have raised your son from the dead and those who put their faith in him will be eternally saved. And because of that, Father, may you answer your people on the day of trouble. May you strengthen their hands. May you give them wisdom. May you fulfill their desires for deliverance. May you fulfill and care for them in the day of trouble. And may the time before the day of trouble prepare them for the days in the day of trouble. And Father, we thank you that we have the greatest example and greatest representative ahead of us. Who before he went into trouble, he prayed and sought your face. When he went into the day of trouble, he prayed and he sought your face and he sacrificially gave himself for our ransom. And you raised him from the dead so that we look at our great high priest and we know that because he's gone before us, we have confidence to enter your throne of grace in our time of need. Father, help us. And thank you that you are good and faithful and never changing to your people. We, your people, look to you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.